Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Good morning and praise the Lord. Thank you. Praise the Lord. I like it to get a little loud in here. So y'all can sing really loud to this one. We did this one last week, and I, I just loved it. So I thought, well, let's do it this morning. Just open us up and, and usher the spirit in. Amen. Feel free to worship and just sing as loud as you can to this song.
First time I came and sang here. Pastor Jason asked me to come and sing this song. And it's just an all-time favorite of how good God is and the woman at the well, Lord. Oh 
weeks together we about got that down I want you to back up now that song we'll talk about it too 
I want you to back up one, and I want you to think just for a moment, because it's really those, those two songs together and set the tone and the tenor for our message this morning so incredibly well. How can it be, God? How can it be that you would plead my cause, you would, you would right my wrongs, that you would, that you would set this captive free? Do you, do you realize? Do you realize that we were all captives? We were all captives to our sin. You know, in the Old Testament, I think about this. In the Old Testament, when it talks about the Israelites being bound in slavery to Egypt, when it talks about them being bound in slavery in Egypt, and it talks about it through the Old Testament, I want you to know that that's, that's not a language that's merely talking about the slavery that they experienced physically working, doing what the Egyptians told them to do. It is a, a symbolism of our bondage to sin. So that's what we see in the Israelites. So what do we see? We see that the Israelites stayed in bondage to sin for all those years. Why? Because they could not set themselves free. They couldn't do it. Do you realize that? They stayed in captivity because they could not set themselves free. We are bound in our chains to our sin or slaves to our sin. We're slaves to the world. We're slaves to our nature. Why? Because we cannot set ourselves free. Do you realize if we could, we would? If we could, we would. If they could have set themselves out of slavery, they would have. But they couldn't set themselves free. What was it that set them free ultimately? What was the last thing that God did to show Pharaoh to let the people go? He put the blood. Wait a minute. He put the, the blood. And the, where the blood was on the door, the angel would pass over those houses and death would not come. The angel would pass on. How are we set free? By the blood. Huh? By the blood. When the blood is applied to our lives, that angel would pass over. And that's the only way that we are set free. That's why it's a sweet, sweet blood flow. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How can it be? I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. God, there's nothing inside of me worth saving, yet you saved me. And that's why I asked Alita to sing that song all that time ago. How can it be? That song, it means so much to me because it, it's in spite of all that I was. Jesus loved me enough to save my soul. And if that ever stops being your rally cry, if that ever stops being your rally cry, my friend, you have gotten too holy for your own britches. And you need to be made real. Because the reality is the minute you think you're worth it is the minute you think Jesus ain't. We've got to recognize that we're not anything apart from God. That we didn't deserve anything but the precious blood of Jesus saved us anyway. You can start timing me now. That was completely, completely free preaching. And this morning we gather, and, and I'm aware, now that I've taken five more minutes, that we are just, we're just this sermon away from eating lunch. I recognize that. There's food in the back. We don't even have to drive to a restaurant today and wait in a line. I promise you I get that. I don't care, but I get that. And I promise you that someday, it's November the 5th, 
I think Thanksgiving is on the 24th this year. I can assure you we will get to that lunch before the actual day of Thanksgiving. It will happen. That is my promise. But I do want to say a few things as we start. We have a lot to celebrate together and be thankful for this year as a church. And, and we're going to reflect on those things in a few weeks. Here in a few weeks, the Sunday, be- Sunday before Thanksgiving, we're going to take some time to reflect truly on some things to really be thankful for. But quickly, since we're eating our Thanksgiving dinner today, I just want to point out just a couple of things that real quickly came to my mind. And one is this. You, you only have to stroll out of these doors and down the hallway into our education wing to recognize that God has been incredibly good to Rocky Valley this year. God has been incredibly good to us. We've got uh, all kind. I'm just just look at it. If you don't remember what it looked like, take a stroll down this wing, and you'll see what it used to look like, and then come back into this one, and, and you'll recognize how good that God has been to us this year. Not only did he allow us to do that, but he allowed it to happen under budget. Now tell me about that. Tell me that ain't a good, good God. One only has to look to our website, our Facebook page, our podcast, and we see, we, we get analytics on those things every month, and we see not a few people, but we see literally hundreds in some months, thousands of people worshiping God with us through those avenues. We've seen a few people that have made their way to this church because they first heard us through one of those avenues. We only have to count back over the past year at the more than 500 boxes of food. Do you realize that this year, this, this little church, this little church on East Old Murfreesboro Road in Lebanon, Tennessee, 37090, we've given out over 500 boxes of food to people that needed help. Yeah, get a clap. That's all right. Now, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 stop. If you're going to clap, clap, okay? We gave out 500 boxes of food this year. Now clap. There you go. At least make me think you're proud of that. And we're looking to continue another year with the Hearts for Hunger ministry. We have a lot to be thankful for as a church. Those are just a few things. I promise we'll get even deeper in a few weeks. But those are just a few things that came to my mind real quickly this morning. And in light of all we have to be thankful for as a church, all that we have to be thankful for as a church, we must look to one area in our lives and never cease to be thankful for the amazing grace of Jesus. The amazing grace, so sweet. We, we start to talking about our thankfulness, and if we're not careful, we're going to overlook the source of all of these things. And it all begins with God. And it all begins with our salvation and the day that we were forgiven by our holy God for our debt of sin. And that's where I want us to focus this morning is how can it be the amazing grace is so, so, so sweet. And this text I actually looked at first a few weeks ago when we preached on the forgiving nature of God. The the message that morning was God is forgiving. And we looked at a text. This was the other text that I thought about preaching that day. But God made me feel like another direction was, was better for that particular message. And so, but this one has been kind of stuck. You ever get anything kind of stuck in your crawl? This one's kind of been stuck with me for a few weeks. And so please stand as we dive into the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 1 and we will go through verse 13. Matthew chapter 9 beginning in 
verse 1. And so he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power of men. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold... Many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners... To repentance, let us pray. Father God, how can it be that your amazing grace is so sweet to save a wretch like me, Lord God? God, grant us the ability to focus on your word for the next few minutes, Lord God. God, let everything we say, everything we do, everything that we think God, let it be held captive by your Holy Spirit, Lord. God, do a work in our lives. God, reveal to us areas that need conviction. And God, show us what you would have us to do through your word. And God, when it's all over, we promise that we will give you the praise and the honor and the glory for all you do in our lives, Lord. For it's in your precious name that we pray, as all God's children said. And you may be seated. First thing I want us to look at this morning is that God's forgiveness is bigger than we can imagine. God's forgiveness is bigger than we can imagine. We find ourselves in our text this morning in a time where Jesus has finished preaching what we now know to be the Sermon on the Mount. He has just finished preaching his Sermon on the Mount. And then when he came down off the Mount, we looked at it a, a few months ago, he came down off the Mount and he went through this line of healing that included the centurion servant and included Peter's mother-in-law. The text tells us after he heals Peter's mother-in-law, it just says he healed many more that evening. And so Jesus came off of the Mount preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He healed people and then he got in his boat, he goes over and he gets to the area of the Gadarenes. And when he gets there, he encounters two men that are so encumbered by demons that when he calls the demons out, he casts the demons into the swine. The swine run headlong off the side, and the people in that area come out because they love their pigs more than they love Jesus' salvation. They said, we want you to get away from this area. 
We ain't sure what you got, what, what voodoo you're casting here, but we want you out of this area. So we see Jesus' sermon on the mount, his healing, his travel over, his casting out of demons, and then he gets back in the boat and he comes back to this area. And that is where we find ourselves this morning. He's run out of that town and he's in a boat coming to the place called Capernaum. That's where this miracle takes place. Jesus is in Capernaum. It's what he would call his own city. As he left Nazareth back in Matthew chapter 4, you'll see that he makes his way to Capernaum, and you'll find that as Jesus went about his journey on his walk on this earth, he generally made his way back to Capernaum. That was kind of home base, you might say. That's where he stayed several nights. And so when it says that he came to his own city, we know that Jesus is in Capernaum now. So he comes into Capernaum, and in verse 2, we see something happen. Somebody brings a man that is paralyzed to see Jesus. They bring their friend to see Jesus, to have him heal this man. They've heard that Jesus is a healer. They've heard that this is going to take place. And so they say, how can we get our friend in front of this healer, this great healer? And so they bring the paralytic to Jesus. Now, most scholars will agree, and I do too, that because of where this is and when this is chronologically, that this is likely the same paralytic man that is talked about in Luke chapter 5 and in Mark chapter 2. And so you can look to, to, to those two places to also see a parallel account of this story. But there we find that these guys had to go to a great length to get this paralyzed man in front of Jesus. It wasn't as easy as they saw Jesus walking down the road and they said, Hey, cripple guy, get up. We're going to tote you over there. No, if you look at the other two accounts of this story, you'll find that there wasn't room for them to come to Jesus. So they cut a hole in the roof. And started lowering this paralytic man down. Now tell me the faith that was required for these four men to cut a hole in the roof and lower their paralyzed friend down. I was taken by that when I thought of that. They're not even looking for healing for themselves. They've got enough faith in the healing of Jesus that they pick up their friend and they say, all right, here's how we get there. And they get there and, and I imagine the crowd was pretty great and they said, look, there's no way we can carry this couch with you on it, this mat that has you on it. There's no way we can get it there. I got an idea. Somebody hitch me up on the roof. I'm going to cut a hole. We're going to lower you down. And when you get in there, you just tell Jesus you need to be healed. We're not going to be able to go in with you. We're going to have to stay on the roof in case this don't work. We're going to need to get you back up pretty quick. They're going to be mad we cut a hole in their roof. Think about the intense faith that had to be there for them to lower them down. And so they cut the hole in the roof. They put him down. Now I just imagine Jesus. Most of you know me. You know that I struggle with attention span. And so sometimes when I read the Bible, I have to close my eyes and I have to imagine what's going on in the Bible. So when I close my eyes and I imagine Jesus standing in a crowded room after just preaching a sermon on the mount, after just healing people, after just casting out demons, I imagine that Jesus is probably sitting in the room and there's people all around him. And suddenly I think that Jesus, probably before anybody else perceived it was happening, began to see the roof move just a little bit. And I think Jesus said to himself, here comes that man that needs healing. Here comes that man. And I believe Jesus just kind of sat back and watched it. And so here comes the roof out of the way. And here comes the man lowered down. And then Jesus says something I love right off the bat. Look what Jesus says right off the bat. 
when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, what did he say? Now before that, one word. Son. That might not mean much to you, but it will in a minute. He said to him, son. Now that word literally means one who belongs to or has complete dependence upon. Hang on. Let me tell y'all over here what it meant. Y'all didn't get it. That means literally one who belongs to or has complete dependence upon. The first thing that Jesus said to this paralyzed man as he's lowered down through the roof is, Son, you belong to me. You're mine. I don't care what else you've done to be healed. You belong to me. It's the same word that Paul would use in Galatians when he talks about the relationship of those who have been adopted into the family of God. It's the same language that would be used to describe you if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are His child. It's the same thought that I have just just six and a half weeks ago as my last child was born, barring miracles. And I looked at her. In that nursery, right? In that nursery. And I want you guys to know that, that, that when you look at that, anybody's had a baby, you know when you first look at that baby, and now it's a blur up to that point. There's a lot of things going on. She comes out, she cries, they, they do some suction mess. There's a lot going on. But when you get in that nursery, that's the, first, that's the first time for me that it always, every time I get to look down and I go, oh, that's mine. That child is completely dependent on me. She's not going to make it apart from Leah and myself. She's not. Nanny looks like she's doing pretty good, so maybe she would. But (laughs) catch, catch my point. It's my daughter. It's my child. It's the same language that Jesus used to describe this man. He said, you are mine. No matter what else happens, as you come through this roof, you're mine, son. And then he says, be of good cheer. Now that's a reasonable translation, but what a better translation would be is literally take courage. My son, be courageous. Now I can only imagine as this guy is lowered through the roof. Now now just think about this. If this guy had friends willing to lower him through a roof and towed him on a couch, they had no doubt taken him to every single doctor that had ever been. No doubt they had been to every physician that existed. They had had every miracle ointment that was made. They had burned every incense that could be burned. They'd been to every healing pool when the water would stir and set him down in there. And nothing had worked up until this point. So there's no doubt in my mind that as this man is lowered through the roof, he doesn't have a a ton of thought that this is going to go much different than the other things. But the faith of them to even be there and, and be there in the presence of Jesus, it says he lowered him down. And what did Jesus do? He looked at him and he said, you're mine? Now be courageous. I see the look on your face. I see that you're not sure what's fixing to happen, but I just said something that means more to you than you'll ever know. I just said, you're my child. And that means more to you than you'll ever know, but I'm going to tell you exactly what it means. Take courage. Now keep in mind, they came for physical healing of this paralyzed condition. But Jesus says, son, take courage. Your sins are forgiven you. 
Son, I want you to be courageous because your sins have been forgiven of you. Now, there are a few things we can take from Jesus doing it in this order. First, the Jewish cultural belief would have been that the sins of man had to be forgiven before the the physical condition of man could have been forgiven. And so perhaps Jesus was going this order because he wanted to stay in line with the cultural beliefs of the time. I kind of doubt it, but perhaps that has something to do with it. We're also fixing to see a standoff between Jesus and those scribes and Pharisees. It could be that Jesus is doing this in order to, to kind of push that standoff to the forefront that he might be able to have a teaching moment. And perhaps that is part of it. But I believe there's something else even more going on here and more important about this miracle. And I think it's that Jesus placed the emphasis on the eternal healing of sin instead of on the temporal healing of paralyzation. Jesus is essentially showing us a lesson that we need not forget today. That while we focus on the here and now and we focus on what's going on in our lives right now and we focus on the consequences of today and we focus on the results of tomorrow, Jesus says to us as he heals this paralyzed man for eternity, he says, your sins are forgiven and that's the most important thing I can do for you. Do you realize that when Jesus healed him from his sin debt, he did all the healing that man ever needed to be done? That man could have stayed paralyzed for the entire rest of his life, but having been forgiven of his sins, his eternal home would have been set in glory. Do you realize that while we focus on the things that happen to us and the things that hold us back and the things that seem like storms that are are not able to be passed through, what we are doing essentially is focusing on the here and now. But what Jesus shows us is the here and now is not nearly as important as the now and forever. What is your eternal standing? Are your sins forgiven? Because that's what Jesus came to forgive. All of the healing that he did was really an example of the glory of God that people might believe and and, and call upon the Messiah that they would see their sins forgiven because that's what he came to do was to heal us from a sin debt. This is a perfect display of the knowledge that The rust and moths may eat the things of this earth. That man's healing on this earth is what he was focused on. But God's grace is bigger than what we see. God's grace is beyond what we believe to be be possible even. But isn't that what's so amazing about the grace of God? Is that it is beyond our comprehension sometimes. It is bigger than we dare to imagine sometimes. You know, we get caught up a lot of times on, on what's going on right here in our little circle. What's going on in our little segment of time. We start to look at people and we start to decide whether or not they're under the grace of God. We start to look at ourselves sometimes and we begin to doubt whether we've done too much to be under the grace of God. But what God shows us here through this paralytic man is that he can forgive the sins of those and it goes even beyond what we're looking for. It goes even beyond that because he forgives us of our sins. And that's the next thing I want us to look at is that God's forgiveness glorifies God. God's forgiveness glorifies God. Look with me at verse 3 real quick. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. So the scribes, they start to, to see what's going on. They're sitting back, right? They're, they're mockers. And they were educated mockers, though, weren't they? They were, they were the religious 
men. They knew the religious ways. They would have been the ones that if they came into one of our churches today, we would assume that they had a commanding understanding of the church bylaws and the covenant and the constitution. Why? Because they would have studied it inside and out until they knew every nuance. They would have even studied it to the point that they decided to put their own twist on it so it made the most sense to them. They would have looked at it so intently that they would have decided it was more important than the Word of God. I'm sorry, hang on, I'm going down a different journey, aren't I? That's who they were. They were the religious uppity up, the holier than thou's, the holy of holies, the ones that matter, the ones that seem important, the ones who said this is what you ought to do, this is how you ought to worship. And here they see Jesus himself. And they say, this man blasphemes. And if Jesus weren't Jesus, they would be accurate because what God was doing... What Jesus was doing was something that only God could do in forgiving sins. And they understood that. And so when they look at it and they don't think that Jesus is the Messiah, what they're saying is completely accurate. This guy doesn't have the authority to do that. He's blaspheming the name of God by giving attributes of God to himself. This man blasphemes. But look in verse 4. Jesus does something again. And I love it when Jesus pulls a Jesus. And that's what Jesus does right here. It says, Jesus, knowing... Their thoughts said. You remember when we talked about the story of Simon and the woman that had the oil at the feet of Jesus and we said that Simon thought it and Jesus heard it. And we talked about what a miracle of God that was. Here Jesus does it again. He's just being Jesus. They, they were in a big crowd. Such a crowd that the roof had to be cut in so I'm sure it was noisy. And they say to themselves... This man blasphemes. But Jesus, out loud, hears their thoughts. He says, you think I'm doing something evil? Now imagine, just... I love to think about scribes when they have that aha moment. And I believe that those scribes were sitting there whispering among themselves. Maybe they weren't even audibly saying it. They were just thinking it, looking to each other, saying, we got this guy now. This man blasphemes. And suddenly imagine the look on their face when Jesus said, why do you think those evil thoughts? So well, how, did, how, did he, how did he pick that up? How did he perceive what it was that I was thinking? He says, you think I'm doing something evil by blaspheming. You think that I'm giving attributes of God to myself, but what you don't realize is that I am God and that I do have the authority to do what I just did. And if you need further evidence of that, why don't you just start with the fact that I just perceived what you thought before you said it. I said it out loud before you had a chance to open your mouth and mess yourself up. He said, I just allowed you to paint yourself in a corner without ever opening your mouth. Do you know how much trouble I would be in? If God ever gave that ability to my wife, I have prided myself over 10 years of marriage and learning how to think it and not say it and keep myself out of trouble. But Jesus said, you thought it. I'm going to go and tell you what you was thinking. And they got themselves in trouble real quick because Jesus is fixing to make them look really, really silly right here. He says, you say that I'm blaspheming, but I want you to think of this. I, I know your thoughts, but... Which is easier to say if I say your sins are forgiving or if I say rise and walk? Which, 
Which would you rather me say, Pharisee? Which would you rather me say, scribe? Which would be less blasphemous? You concern yourself with the fact that I said I forgive sins. Would it have been better if I just healed this man's condition? And essentially what Jesus is trying to point out to us is this. Either one is impossible without me. Either one's impossible without God. Do you recognize that? When he says that, he's kind of painting them into a stupid corner. And he says, do you realize that whether it was healing his physical condition or forgiving his sins, neither one of them was going to happen unless I'm God. It really wouldn't have mattered which one I did. So why do you think these evil thoughts, I'm obviously displaying something to you that you don't want to see. You don't want to see that I'm the Messiah. You don't want to see that I am Jesus. You want to see things the way you've always wanted to see them and put this in a specific box the way you think it's supposed to look at. But right now I'm showing you that your box has been busted wide open. The sides are laying down and things are different than you could ever imagine because I do have the authority both to forgive sins and I can tell that man to get up and he'll get up. And in just a minute he's going to. In fact, he does that right after that, doesn't he? He says, which would, which would you rather me have said? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. And then almost like he's kind of just really being Jesus for a minute. He says, hey, go on, get up, dude. And he gets up. Hang on. He said, hey, go on and get up, dude. And he got, I don't know if he said dude, but I think he might have. He said, go on, get up. And the dude got up and went home. Can you imagine having woke up that morning a paralytic man? And having walked home, can you imagine the four friends that said, thank God I was tired of toting him? I was finna leave him there. I'm sick of it. Look at verse 8 with me. But when they saw it, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Now that word for marveled, I do want to point this out. When we think of marveled, we think of like a positive statement, don't we? Like I might marvel at something that happens. When Alita hits one of those notes that I can't hit, I might marvel at that like that, right? She probably marvels when she hears how far off key that I can sing a song at how bad somebody can do that, right? We think of marveling like, oh. That was A-sharp, I think. But that word really means they were terrified. It means something totally different, really. It literally means that when the multitude saw what Jesus did, it scared them to death. Why? They'd never seen anything like that. They'd never seen Now, they'd seen that paralyzed man. I don't doubt that they'd seen him toted around by them four old boys for a long time. But now, all of a sudden, they see him actually get up. They ain't never seen anything like that. But what do they, what do they have to do, though? I love that next part. It says they were terrified, but they had to give the glory to God, didn't they? I said, whoo, I ain't sure about that. But what I do know is it had to be God. God's forgiveness is for God's glory. We, 2,000 years later, should stand still in awe of God when he forgives sins. We should still stand in awe of God 
when he does these things. But I ask you, do we? Do we? Do we still stand in awe of God for forgiving people's sins? Now, I know that we stand in awe of God when he heals the cancer that couldn't be healed. We do pretty good with that. We still stand in awe of God when somebody flips a car over 11 times and walks out the side door unharmed. We stand in awe of God then. But what about when somebody who was a sinner is forgiven of their sins? Because, my friends, that is the most awe-inspiring thing that can happen on this side of glory. I mean it. That is the most awe-inspiring thing to consider that someone who deserved death and punishment for their sins could be forgiven their sins by a Jesus that loved them so much. But we tend to cheapen that grace by holding on to our thoughts. What we think God should do to that person. What we think the punishment should be. How we think it ought to go or how we don't think they deserve the forgiveness. And when we do that, gosh, it cheapens the grace of God. Don't cheapen the grace of God. Stand in awe. Stand in awe and glorify God for what he's doing all around us. And that brings us to our last point this morning. It's this God's forgiveness is beyond human comprehension. It's beyond human comprehension. Jesus heals the paralytic, then he goes on, he finds him a tax collector named Matthew while he's on the way. Now Matthew wasn't a popular guy among his people. The tax collectors, in fact, would have been more commonly known as thieves. Yeah, a tax collector made his living. A tax collector got in line with the Roman government. The Roman government said this person is due this many denarii for their taxes. The tax collector's job was to decide how much more he could charge that person to put in his pocket. <coughs> Pretty good job, right? He'd sit in his tax office. You come in. He'd pull you up and he'd say, you owe Rome three denarii. Your tax bill is six denarii. And so he wouldn't have been a popular guy, right? He made the decision for how much tax you had to pay. People thought he was a thief. He made his living taking money from the people. Next thing you know, though, what does Jesus do? He says, hey, get up, dude. You're going to be one of my disciples. And can we go to your house and you invite all your little thieving buddies over? I'd like to eat dinner with them. And while they're on the way, see if they can stop and pick up. I love this description says the tax collectors and sinners, right? It almost makes me think that Jesus said, Matthew, let's go have some sandwiches. Call your tax collector buddies over. Let's make it a company luncheon. And while they're on the way, would you look over to the left and right and just pick up anybody that looks like they don't belong anywhere else and bring them on? I'd like to eat dinner with the sinners. I'd like to hang out with those people that don't belong. You see, I just saw some scribes earlier, and they're not very fun to hang out with. They're holier than thou. I'd rather hang out with somebody that needs a Savior. I'd rather hang out with somebody that needs forgiveness. And so here we see the Pharisees looking again, right? And their minds explode. Here he is. He calls himself a rabbi. He is a teacher. He has disciples. He has all these things. And here this dude is sitting with a bunch of sinners. What is his problem? What is wrong with this Jesus? And Jesus again points out to him something. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came for sinners. 
Those of you who think you're righteous, you don't need a Savior. You've already got your glory right here on this earth. You think that being holy on earth is where it ends. I came to save the people who recognize that they need me. I came to heal the people that recognize that they're sinners. Those that are sick, they don't need a physician. The sick people need a physician. And we don't have time to unpack everything here. We'll preach through this another time. But I want us to focus this morning in line with the context of what we looked at at the beginning of this chapter. Because the focus is on the amazing grace of God that Jesus, he forgave the paralytic man. He healed the paralytic man. God was glorified through that healing. And so what do we see about the grace of Jesus in these last verses? And I believe it's that we should notice that Jesus forgave the sins of those that everybody else thought were beyond forgiven. It was well beyond human comprehension. Everybody thought that those tax collectors were a special breed of sinner. Everybody thought that all those people sitting there were a special breed of sinner that were beyond the grace of Jesus. They were beyond the grace of God. They didn't belong. They were second-rate people. But what did Jesus say? Get up. You're going to be my disciple. Everybody around said, Matthew can't be a disciple of God. He's a second-class citizen at best. God said, you're one of my disciples. I want you to follow me. In fact, before you die, you're going to pin down one of the most chronologically correct gospel accounts of my life. And one day in 2017, some guy's going to preach out of that. Get up, tax collector. See, we tend to put people in a compartment. And we say, oh, I can see how that one could be saved. I can see how that person could be covered by the grace. I could see how that sin could be forgiven. But then something else happens and we go, oh, I don't think that that was really forgiven. I don't really think that sin was cast as far as the east is from the west. I think that person should have to continue to pay for that sin themselves, even though Jesus said, I already paid it all. Do you realize there's no varying grade of forgiveness in all of Scripture? You won't find it. Go look as hard as you want to. The only varying grade of forgiveness is what we have put on forgiveness ourselves. That's the only varying grade of forgiveness. When you try to decide how forgiven somebody is, you're playing God and you're more of a sinner than they were. Ha, ha, ha. Because Jesus said, I cast all those sins as far as the east is from the west, from one scarred hand to another. It doesn't matter what it was. If I said it's forgiven, it's done. And if a holy God, now I want you to think about that. If a holy God, anybody in here holy? At least you're honest. If a holy God can look at a sinner and say, your sins are forgiven, you've been reconciled to me, why can't we? Let me say that again. If a holy God can look at a sinner and say, your sins are forgiven, all I see is the precious blood of Jesus Christ when I look at that. Why can't we? But instead, we want to grade forgiveness. It's worthy for that person gets it, that person doesn't. That sin's covered, that sin's not. Peter would recognize in the house of Cornelius that though he'd been taught his entire life that a Gentile could not come to the Holy Spirit, 
as he sat in the house of Cornelius, he had to say what? What God has cleaned up is cleaned up. He didn't say it exactly like that. But I think Peter said basically that. He said, what God has cleaned up is cleaned up. If it's set free by Christ, it is free indeed. The grace of God is able to cover a multitude of sins, even when it's beyond our human comprehension. And thank God that it's beyond my human comprehension. Because if I could get it, I could mess it up. Amazing grace. So sweet the sound. It covers every part of me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thought to think about that amazing grace. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And as we close this morning, I want to ask you to focus on just a couple of things. Are you living in the recognition of how sweet the grace of God has been in your life? If you're a child of God, if you are a child of God, if you've been saved, if you've ever cried out for the healing power of the blood of Jesus, if you've ever done that, I ask you, are you standing firmly in the grip of grace? And if you're not, if you're not standing in awe of the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, will you come this morning and beg God to forgive you because He did not forgive you to live in chains. He did not set you free for you to live in bondage. He set you free that you would be free indeed. Free to worship Him. Free to glorify Him. Free to live in the knowledge that He set you free. Don't let Satan hold you back. Because Jesus' blood is stronger than any scheme of hell. Don't let Satan hold you back. But if you're here this morning, you've never been saved. You've never cried out, God, please save me. You've never asked Jesus to come and be the Lord of your life. You've never given it all to him. Every head's going to be bowed. Every eye's going to be closed in just a moment. Miss Alita's going to sing. And then we're going to go home. If you've never been saved, you're going to have let an opportunity to come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ pass you by. So if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're living in bondage. Come and be free this morning. So all throughout the house, You're either praying for somebody to come to know Jesus. You're coming forward to ask Jesus to let you stand in the grip of his grace. Or you're worshiping where you sit. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
in the house of the Lord to stand let's sing another verse or two of that amazing grace how sweet the sound amazing grace how sweet the sound saves a man like me how once was lost do that one more time and I want everybody in here, I want you to do me a favor I can't make you but I'm going to ask you to do this with me if you recognize how amazing the grace of God is I want you to close your eyes for me right now, just close your eyes close your eyes and when you sing these words I want you to think this thought I deserved hell but Jesus set me free. And if he did that for you, if he did that for you, then I want you to sing this like you mean the grace is amazing. One more time, then we'll be done. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.